Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And unless the calendar is lying to us, this uh, is the week of Valentine's Day. That's right. Yep, which probably means uh, different things to different people. Some may, uh, it, for some people, it may mean ooh, a celebration of the the love that I am now in. For others, it is perhaps a reminder of uh, a past love and uh, and brings with it certain uh, negative connotations or love that is not yet uh, fully manifested in one's life, and then it can be equally problematic. Or maybe it's just how in the world am I going to get uh, reservations at a restaurant tonight to. Uh, uh, to satisfy the uh, uh, the significant other in my life. That's right. Yeah, and I think that uh, we've got a podcast that's that's going to cater to some of this, right? But we're we're not talking oh, about all of it. All of it. Well, yeah. I don't know. I don't know because we're not talking like uh, you know roses and kitten farts here, are we? No, we're not. We're talking um, hardcore science and love. Right. Though it is conceivable that a scientist could study either um, uh, kitten farts or true, and certainly they study flowers. But um, but yeah, we're we're dealing with scientists in love, and it's it's a uh, it's an interesting concept. I mean, it's not out of the, everyone knows scientists are of course human beings, and they fall in love, and no matter how nailed down their their uh, one part of their life may be with uh, with the strict uh, in uh, you know realities of science, uh, they're still subject to this weird human emotion that uh, entangles all of us. That's right, and. We've talked about scientists being the, the obsessive kind before, right? Oh, yeah. So it would uh, make sense that scientists in love would be super obsessed and two scientists in love doubly so. And might even, their love might be so crazy and strong that it could eventually lead to maybe like the A-bomb. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it, it's like the, um, like love is an alcohol and, uh, and zeal for science is a caffeinated beverage. Yes. And then when, when those two things mix, when they are in the same container, uh, as we'll see in two cases, when when scientists are in love with each other and share that scientific zeal and and a um, and, and this love, it becomes uh, something that can potentially give you a heart attack. It's true. Yeah, right in, in the club, right as it were. <laughs> so specifically, we are talking about. Well, first, let's talk about the Sagans. That's right, the Sagans. Yeah, Carl Sagan and Andruin. Yes. Yes. And they had they had a groovy kind of love. Yes, a cosmic kind of love, I guess you could you could say. Um, to, uh, to to set this in time, we are going back to the summer of 1977, and that's when uh, Carl uh, and I, a lot of you probably know Carl uh, Sagan, of course, the uh, host of Cosmos, which you can get on. Uh, uh, you can get it on like Netflix streaming and stuff. It's it's still wonderful today. Uh, most of the science still holds up. Uh, but you know, astronomer, astrophysicist. Um, you know, cosmologist generally, generally was just on the forefront of popularizing science and just being a a mascot for for, for scientific inquiry. Right, particularly space. It's particularly space, yes. And uh, he was involved in a little something called the Voyager Project. That's right. And the creative director on this was one Anne Druin. Now, Voyager, it, you may remember this mostly from the uh, the Star Trek movie in which uh, a a, uh, a fictional Voyager craft comes back super intelligent. But, of course, Voyager, uh, we were sending them out, and they're still uh, sailing out uh, to the limits of, uh, of of man's discovery in space. That's right. And uh, aboard this uh, particular, these two particular crafts, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, was a golden record, which, uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, 
uh, Jad Abenrod and Robert Corrich of Radiolab referred to as, quote, the ultimate mixtape. That's right. Of their love. Yes. Because they collaborated on this golden yeah. record. I mean, it's also like a mixtape, like, hey, aliens out there, here you go. And we made, we made a mixtape for you. But That's it's right. also, it, it, it really, um, represent this, this bond that was uh, growing between these two and this love that was growing between them two, between these two in the summer of 1977. Yeah, I mean, it's literally documenting them falling in love and the moment that they fell in love in which they chose a, a specific piece of music for it, mm-hmm. uh, which is amazing. And it's just out there flinging uh, itself into outer space. Yeah, and currently uh, Voyager 1 is um, 116.5 astronomical units from Earth. Uh, just to rewind, uh, an astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So it's that distance spread out 116 and a half times. Voyager 2 is 95.2 astronomical units from the Earth. And these distances uh, continue to increase. And we talked about this a little bit in our uh, previous podcast about alien etiquette. And the idea, uh, of course, of this golden record is that it would be intercepted and it might uh, tell an extraterrestrial life form, what life was like, I suppose you right. have to say was, um, during that time well, period. Well, it could be was, because yeah, it's going to be out there for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that was the sort of the, the joke to us is, well, maybe they intercept this in 400,000 years. Yeah. And, 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 they, and they'll be like, I don't even know what this chicken scratch is. Yeah. And it's kind of a, it, you know, it's it's kind of a time capsule as well. But uh, but it, it contained, the, just the record uh, contained uh, spoken greetings in 59 different languages, ranging from ancient uh, Akkadian to uh, Wu, a modern Chinese dialect. Mm-hmm. That's uh, not to be confused with anything Wu-Tang Clan related. No, no. But uh, sadly, the record was uh, was pressed and sent out before their genesis. Yeah. But uh, also Sounds of Earth, 90 minutes of uh, of selected music from both, e- both Eastern and Western classics. Again, no Wu-Tang, uh, sadly. And uh, also The Sound of a Kiss, uh, Mother's First Words to a Newborn Child. Yeah, a baby crying. Right. Yeah, so a, a vast collection of our human experience. And most impressive uh, of all, uh, for the purposes of discussing uh, uh, the love between uh, these two scientists, uh, The Sound of a Heartbeat. That's right. Uh, what was the idea? Andrewan said, I, I'd like to have my heartbeat recorded, mm-hmm. right? And then sort of data scrambled later to, to sort of map this out. Take, take me down that road, Robert. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating because, uh, because, uh, Sagan and Ann basically went down and had this recording done, like just, just shortly after they had actually come, because they'd been professionally, uh, aligned for a while and they knew each other, they were working each other, but this was after they actually reached the point where they realized they were in love with each yeah. other. And, 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 and just shortly after they, they'd actually spoken about it with each other. And then they went and recorded her heartbeat. And now it's out there on the plate and it's, 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 it's beautiful. It's the the love and the science um, intermingling in, with each other, and uh, and uh, you know maybe it's a little sappy if you're if you're not in the mood for it this week. But, uh, you but know, the, for my money, yeah. But there, I mean, there you go. You've got this this incredible collaboration between two people, mm-hmm. and we should also note too that Carl Sagan was married at the time that um, he met Andrewin. Yeah, and it, as far as I know, nothing nuts or scandalous went on, so to speak. I think he actually declared his love for her over the phone after she had talked to him about a particular piece of music that they had been obsessing over. Right. So it was sort of one of those things that I think that he was like, oh, my God, I'm in love with this person. And then, of course, he dissolved his marriage, um, his first marriage. So I just want to point that out. I, I think that Carl Sagan was a perfect gentleman. I'd like to think that, but but I don't know that for sure. 
And of course, uh, Sagan died, uh, sadly in 96, but, uh, Anne, uh, continues on, uh, continues yes. writing and she, uh, I believe currently resides in New York. Yep. And she actually made a comment too for that Radio Lab, um, piece saying something about how uh, sometimes when she gets a little depressed or, you know, nostalgic, she thinks about the, the golden, uh, record and this, this document of their love just flung out into outer space can still traveling. Yeah. It's kind of a beautiful thought. I think so as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and it's one of those like grand, I mean, he didn't do it for Valentine's Day, but you know, it's, it, it, it pretty much, uh, trumps anything that any of us might have, us uh, might be scheming for that week. Yeah, right. Yeah. Helicopter ride? Yeah. Sorry. Mm-mm. Yeah. Carl's got you beat. Yeah. Yeah. But there's another pair, pretty famous pair, that, uh, has come to light recently because of a book that's been written about them. Right. Though they've, of course, they, they've been, you know, uh, people have been studying them for a while, right. but, this, but this latest book has been really, uh, really fascinating. Sort of re-examining their relationship and their contribution to science. Yeah, the, the book is called Radioactive Marie and Pierre Curie by Lauren Redness. Uh, and, and this just came out, uh, I think, in December of 2010. Uh, yeah, fallish or fallish, something. Yeah. yeah. And we picked up our copies in the last uh, week or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I was, I, this is a book I was really not sure exactly what to, to expect. Um, and we're going to come back to the Curries, but just to, to brief, we're going to talk about this book because, uh, I basically heard from my wife had heard something about it, uh, on the radio and she's like, Hey, this sounds like there's a really cool book about the Curries coming out and the cover glows in the dark. So I'm like, and that oh. was enough for you. Well, yeah. I'm like, all right, I'm there. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I love things. That glow in the, I'm wearing a glow in the dark shirt right now. So, you are. Yeah. Uh, and we always record the the podcast in complete darkness. Yeah, well, yeah. sometimes a candle. We yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Too. We have to see the notes, and we only use extremely flammable paper. Right. Yeah, makes sense. But um, but but anyway, th- this book. So I get it in right, and it's uh, you know, it's a large hardbound book, and sure enough, the cover glows in the dark. But it is it's it's kind of hard to describe because it's not really. One might be tempted to to talk about it as a graphic novel. But right, it, was my, that was my initial right. impression. But uh, generally speaking, graph, graphic novels are more a case of sequential art, where mm-hmm. you're having little little boxes or large boxes of uh, of images that that tell a story. Right. Um, and this is more. I, I guess I would tend to think of this as an like an illuminated manuscript or a or just an illustrated biography. But it's not even. Even calling it a biography is not really accurate. No, in fact, I I uh, heard an interview on NPR with the author Laura Redness, mm-hmm. and uh, the the interviewer had had actually made this um, observation that he thought that it was more like a, a, sort of an illuminated manuscript or journal, mm-hmm. like this this imagined journal. Yeah, they're, they're, of of what might be Marie and um, Pierre Curie's experiences. Yeah, it's kind of scrapbooky, and I and I say that in, in like the absolute best connotation. Yeah, like we're we're not talking Etsy here; we're yeah. talking <laughs> science scrapbooky, if that yeah. makes any sense. Uh, but the reason that we're getting so excited about this is because Laura Redness really put a tremendous amount of research into this book. Right. So. She's looking at the trajectory of Marie and Pierre Curie's relationship, which is really the heart of this book and, and is interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But she's also looking at um, what their discoveries uh, bore out for us as humanity. And um, and she's also looking at the future generations of the Curies and what they contribute or what their contributions were as well. So, I mean, she she went to great lengths really to mine a lot of information of this book. Right. Um, now, I think we should stop for a second, just for anybody listening out there who's yeah. not really familiar with the Curies um, or, or right, needs a right. refresher. Um, 
Marie Curie was born Marie Skoldowski, Skoldowska. Sounds good. Yep. In Warsaw, Poland, um, back in 1876, I believe. Yes. And uh, she went on to marry physics uh, professor Marie Curie in uh, uh, Pierre Curie, sorry, in 1894, and uh, the two dove into research together. Like this is again, it's like the 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 deal with uh, with with Carl and Anne. They were they were both just really into their work, and suddenly right. they had they they had the chance to be together to, to and they 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 fell in love and they threw themselves at the same research. Right, and actually, let's just go with that because I think it's interesting to point out that Marie Curie, who was originally Maria, she changed her name to Marie um, when she was in Paris, but she was a, a, one of very few, obviously, women uh, students at Sorbonne. And she was the first to get her PhD in science. And I believe the first to become a professor there? Yes. 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 And, uh, she was appointed after her husband's death. And she won not one, but two, two Nobel Prizes. Yeah. So first woman to win a Nobel Prize, first person to win two. Yeah. Alongside Pierre. So what I'm, the reason why I think that's important is because these are incredible circumstances for this woman to be in. And the fact of the matter is she met Pierre because she just needed some extra lab space. So someone was like, oh, you should check out the sky. He's got some extra space. You know, you could probably use it. So what happens, obviously, is they they come together and they find that they are both the most hardcore science researchers that they know that exist. And that really bonds them. So they have this. I don't know that I would call it a passionate sort of love. I don't know that we know that. Mm-hmm. But we know that they're passionate about their research. And this really bonds them together. Right. Yeah. They become like a. Just, just a, a team uh, effort, you know, and and, yeah. uh, and and what did they accomplish? Well, okay, the first uh, Nobel Prize uh, had to do with her uh, uh, with their isolation of uh, polonium, right? Which is a radioactive element named uh, by Marie for Poland, her home country. That's right. And uh, and also radium, another radioactive uh, element, uh, and the one that was far more noteworthy, and uh, we discussed a little more. And uh, she named that one. That has the, the the Latin for light, I believe. Yep. And then the second one was for uh, actually her her uh, inquiry into radioactivity. Uh, the fact that she even discovered that their elements could be radioactive. Right. Right. So this book is is about these two people coming together, about the the thoroughly non scientific things in their lives that led them that, uh, to to each other. Like uh, she fell in love with a uh, with a noble. Um, and son, as I remember. And, right. And he was too good for her, according to the family. So it was heartbreak. That's um, right. And then uh, he had another situation with where he was in love with someone and it just was not meant to be, uh, you know. Right. So they had both experienced heartache. Yeah. And when they found each other, um, I think they obviously drawn to each other because of, of their love of science. But Marie also says, in the uh, as told by Laura Redness in the book, he caught the habit of speaking to me in his dream of an existence consecrated entirely to scientific research and asked me to share that life. Yeah. So that, again, is unusual to have this pair of people um, at that time period saying, OK, let's just throw all caution to the wind. We'll get married. We'll <laughs> research like we've never researched in our life. Maybe we'll have kids. The kids don't matter in the sense that you'll still research. And then they'll research too. That's right. We'll, we'll, throw we'll the kids create the yeah. little researchers. And <laughs> so again, that's, that, that was a, not something that was commonly thought then. It was, you get married, you raise the children, um, you know, I'll come home and you make me some, you know, roast beef. Right. And, and she was still doing that and she was doing the science. I mean, she was, she was going to the lab w- with him and working, but, uh, but also yeah. raising kids, cooking. Um, so the, the great thing about Redness's book, I mean, 
aside from just being beautiful to, to look through, I mean, the, the illustrations are, are magnificent, is that she weaves this, the emerging love of the Curies with the emergence of this science, of this fascinating science of radioactivity. Right, because radium and polonium by themselves is kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah. all right, so th- there's the elements, but what, what's, what does that mean to our society today? Well, t- t- tremendous amount, and... uh at the time, the, the, you really had this, especially with radium, there was this radium zeal that really took off. And and, uh, and uh, Redness discusses this at length in, in yeah. the book. And because it was a time, it's like, th- think back to any time where we've developed a new technology. Um, like when electricity was first uh, becoming a thing uh, and, the, and the, the utilization of electricity in our lives. Like people were tremendously excited about it, you know, right. like... Uh, you know, Tesla and Edison are, are doing all this stuff. It's like, let's, let's show it off. Let's do it. Let's electrocute an elephant. Right. Tesla's let's, electrocuting himself. Yeah. Like electrocuting himself. And there was, there was some fascinating talk in the time where people were discussing using electricity to execute criminals. Mm-hmm. And some people were actually speaking up and saying, this is just, this is blasphemous because mm-hmm. electricity is this holy, blameless creature. And, right. uh, and you, you, you can't use that to kill a criminal. That's just, that's what, that's horrible. Yeah. You know? How can it light up my life and allow me to to stay up late and kill a criminal? Or, yeah. yeah. It's just completely ridiculous. Yeah. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. So you see, and you, we end up seeing the same thing with radium. It's t- today, you continue to, to see, anytime there's like any kind of new science, you can guarantee somebody out there is going to try and market something to make a buck off of it. And uh, with radium at the time, it was it was really kind of crazy. Um, and we should also point out that the reason that this happened, that radium sort of went nuts, is that Marie and um, Pierre Curie decided not to patent radium because right. they thought, well, no, I mean, you know, it's only going to be a handful of scientists that really need to use it. We don't need to patent it. Yeah, and they were like, and then they were like, this is a totally beneficial thing. A lot of great stuff is going to come out of this. Yeah, and it just wouldn't be in the spirit of what we're doing. Right. So. Along come the, uh, all these radioactive quack cures. Um, just to, just to run through a few, like there were a lot of, uh, radium water jars where you just filled up with water and then you could have r- radium in your drinking water. Why radioactive not? drinking water. Seemed like a good idea at the time, right? Um, it, and it would, there were, there were other far more questionable, uh, items such as, uh, suppositories. Again, we're talking about real radium in the suppository, right? right? Yeah. Mm. Actual, uh, radioactive elements. Uh, in uh, a person's uh, rectum for medicinal purposes, mm-hmm. you could get radioactive toothpaste. Um, again, it's just uh, you could get these uh, these radioactive plates to put in your cigarette um, package. Right. Cigarette at the at the time, it's like if you thought, oh, these cigarettes aren't good enough for me now. Yeah, no, let me add some radioactivity to that just to just to boost the health factor a little. Um, uh, there were uh, refrigerator freezer deodorizers. Uh, there, you could get a flask. So you could radiate all your food in the freezer. Is that what I'm hearing? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, it, it just went on and on. And, uh, and, and then on top of that, at, at the time, again, everybody's willing to rate radium was a expensive. Right. And in, in, and all this hope was wrapped up in it. This stuff's going to change the, the world. Um, and, and so for a brief time, uh, before the, the dark attributes of, of radium became fully known, it, uh, it became like, uh, like, like if you had had a, if you had a like a, a credit card, right, uh, back in the early 1900s, platinum or gold, neither of those would have been your higher um, end card. No, you would want a radium card because uh, you nice. had a, yeah you had a number of these different uh, radium branded products that were not in them in and of themselves radioactive. 
but you had like radium beer. You had radium Nut-X condoms. Um, you had radium playing cards, ra- radium cigarettes. Uh, you know, the, the list just, okay. just goes on. So yeah. this is like when I see products in the store and it says all natural or organic and they actually, that's sort of like the green washing. They may not be. Yeah. Organic this is like radium washing. Radium yeah. washing. Yeah. Wow. So that, ex- that was a, a crazy, um, amount of fervor around something like that. Yeah. And it, of course it was not meant to, to last. No. And, and that's one of the, again, something that's beautifully woven into this text because it, it kind of, I mean, it, it does uh, parallel uh, so often our stories of love, where where love blooms and is awesome, but then there are either love falters or it is complicated by other things, mm-hmm. and it maybe it maybe it doesn't fail, but it is forced to uh, become a more realistic beast, you know. The half life it uh, stabilizes yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, huh. nice. So. What I think is interesting about this, too, is that, you know, obviously Pierre and Marie didn't really understand how um, dangerous it was to be handling this in the first place anyway. And it, boy, were they handling it. Yeah. I mean, they were they were tossing it around at dinner parties, right? Yeah. Uh, Marie had a little bar and a jar next to her bed that mm-hmm. would, you know, illuminate blue at night, which I'm sure was quite pretty. And uh, and then there's also this, uh, this case, too, where um, it was 1903. And uh, Pierre goes into uh, the United Kingdom's Royal Institution. And uh, there are all these guys there, scientists from all over. And he rolls up his sleeve to show a burn on his arm, or what looks like a burn, off to everybody. And uh, this is a wound that uh, had been caused by radium salts, which he had taped to the skin um, for just 10 hours, 50 days earlier. Mm -hmm. And the wound was still there. And while he's doing this, uh, he ends up spilling some of the salts that he's showing off onto the table. And... The, the the resulting contamination of the table was still detectable and in need of cleaning up like 50 years later. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, when we're saying it, the way we're presenting it, it, it probably, I mean, it comes off a little weird and a little bizarre and maybe a little funny. Uh, but the way Redness presents it, I mean, she, you really, she presents these two human beings mm-hmm. and that are engaged in this thing they really care about and are, and are in, engaged in this relationship. And they keep, they keep dealing with this dangerous stuff and they're getting, they're getting more and more sick. It's having an effect on their bodies and their, their well-being. And they, they realize it, uh, on some level, but they, she's still they sleeping next themselves. to them. They can't stop themselves. Yeah. Like I was telling you earlier, it, it reminds me of, of stories you hear about people that are in an abusive relationship mm-hmm. and they can't, they know that it's, it's a bad relationship, but, but they can't break themselves away f- from it because they're, they're tied to it or they're obsessed with it. And that's, that's the, 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 the way, um, redness really presents it here. You right. know, that, uh, that they, they're, they're so obsessed with this scientific discovery that they're working with that they can't, they can't separate themselves enough from it to, to save themselves. Well, and I think it's because it's that quest for knowledge. They yeah. know there's there's more potential than they realize. And in fact, they... Um, and there is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they start to say, okay, well, if, if this is killing healthy cells, maybe it can kill diseased cells, and mm-hmm. therefore it could be used in radiation. Right, so and this is after they out. had uh, worked with... Uh, they figured out ways that what would become x-rays. Right. Uh, where it can be used to, to figure out what's... You don't have to cut into a limb to see what's going on with the bones. You can... you can We, we kind of... It's easy to overlook that today, just how helpful... Right. Uh, an X-ray is right. Yeah. So, yeah, you've got you've got these two people completely obsessed with this, completely obsessed with the process, and you know, redness does do a great job of weaving what becomes that story of radiation, right? So, what happens is that you know they're playing around with it. They've they uh, they have 
um, a couple of daughters, Irene and Eve, mm-hmm. and, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit because there's an awful lot of stuff that happens in, in uh, Marie and Pierre, Pierre Curie's life. But uh, what happens is that Irene begins to study uh, radium as well. Mm-hmm. And Mary's a scientist, Frederic, and they actually create artificial radioactivity which is to say that they can take an element and make it radioactive. Right. And then you begin to see that this is this is information that's being um, relayed from one generation to another. And it makes me think about our past podcast about tool users and even about computer viruses, where we talk about how the human is just essentially a host for information, uh-huh. host for, for technology, and that we're just, they're just replicating it based on us. And that really is evident, I think, in this connection uh, between the generations here. Right. And and also, like we were talking about that, the optimism for, for radium and all things radioactive, uh, that optimism beginning to 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 fall for a little and and be, maybe become a, well definitely become a lot more realistic yeah uh, and part of that was realizing whoa the the curries are getting really ill right but, but also when people were suddenly realizing hey we can we can make weapons out of this um not not only does it, are there certain um uh, negative health uh things going on here but but we could make a bomb yeah that's right and it's Einstein actually who mm-hmm. who's looking at the situation and looking at the discoveries of the two generations and uh sends out a missive to FDR saying, hey, we, we probably need to get behind yeah, this. Yeah, because the Germans soon. are working on it. Yeah. yeah. So, again, it's like this very interesting trajectory between like the, the relationships and how the relationships are bearing out science. Right. Which, you know, implicates all of us, really, when you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the book also goes it goes a lot into like it'll it'll deal with the Curies and then it'll flash forward to Robert Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, contemplating uh uh, nuclear weapons, or it will uh, it will skip to uh, Hiroshima or um, or Three Mile Three Mile Island, and uh, and then it will skip back to the the Curie. So it, it it jumps around in time a little mm-hmm. and gives you this complete picture of 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 what they're working on and what it's ultimately going to become. Uh, the uh, the atomic tests in Nevada. And the, mm-hmm. uh, and, and just like, I was not aware before reading this that anyone ever had a mushroom clout party where you would go out and, and have like a barbecue and, yeah, and see the distant, yeah. I mean, not close up, but like the distant, uh, smoke rising. Yeah. Apparently in Las Vegas, this was a big deal, right? And yeah. that whatever the years between 1945 and 1963 that you would have a mushroom clout party, I guess, until they went underground yeah. and started detonating there. Um, but yeah, you, you see that picture. You see the, the you see radium sort of being born mm-hmm. and being teased into this other um, this other thing that becomes this other thing that becomes the a bomb. Yeah, just as you see Irene being born and having this relationship and, and furthering that technology, and then having she and her uh, husband having another child, which is the great grandchild, or excuse me, the the grandchild of Marie, who becomes a nuclear physicist. Right. Of course. Um, you know, the book does, as you say, jump around, but you you keep going back to that story of Marie specifically sort of suffering for, for her knowledge, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at how she and Pierre detailed the accounts of the, their own decline. Marie more so, because Pierre was killed. Um, he had an untimely death. He was killed in uh, 1906, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, he was run over by a carriage carrying 13,000 tons of military gear. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was a, a brutal part. Yeah. Um, but Marie, at the end of her life, when she was very, very sick, and she died from aplastic anemia, which was, of course, caused by the radiation, she chronicled her deterioration in data columns with entries on her body temperature, her color, 
her urine discharged in pus and she tracked her level of pain. I mean, it's just so interesting that even at the very end of her life that she's sort of handling it the only way that she knows how to, which is to, to make it into data that she can try to understand. Right. Um, but you know, that's, that's the interesting thing about this is it's this slow death of, of, um, herself and even Irene and Frederic, her daughter and son-in-law are exposed to radiation and also getting ill as well. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it, again, it's, it's a really powerful book. I, I fin- actually read the second half of it last night before going to sleep. And so I just, I had all these dreams where it w- where somebody was testing, uh, like testing nuclear weapons, uh, on a college campus. And I, when I was getting like really, cause they were doing like some sort of, in the dream, they were doing some sort of, uh, like war game. And I just was so angry. I was like, why are you doing this? This is so destructive to all of us. And don't you know that yeah. now I'm going to have to deal with the zombies after the apocalypse and, <laughs> Yeah, Retreat well, to a mall now. I know. Well, luckily the zombies didn't show up in the dream, but that's uh, good. Yeah, I think though. Again, looking back at their accomplishments, you just have to look at it. At how amazing it is that they took four years of their lives just specifically for radon. Excuse me, radium. Um, it's grueling work. They are in a shed in Paris. They had forty tons of corrosive materials to go through to, to extract just one tenth of a gram of radium, and the reason they had to do that is because they had to prove that it physically existed. Because just to say, you know, okay, well, we we found this, and, and to try to get this published, um, the scientific community wasn't necessarily going to um, take that at face value. Right. So they <laughs> think about all that exposure in that time, going through uh, a heat pile of yeah. corrosive materials, kind of creepy. So anyway, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're not being bribed to say this, but uh, it's a great book. So if you, uh, if, if you're interested in a, in an atypical science, uh, book, uh, pick it up. If you want to, want to read a, a if you're, you want to read a romance that has science in it and, and also a story, a, a story of, uh, of scientific advancement and all the com- uh, complications that come with it in human culture, uh, it, it's a really good read. Yeah. Also would make for a pretty cool Valentine's Day gift if you, that, that other person in your life, uh, is uh is interested in science at all? And I would say even it, it sort of extends beyond that. I mean, it's it's about humanity, right? Yeah, it's a it's it's bigger than just yeah a mere romance. Yeah, and I don't mean to get all goofy here, but I admit <laughs> that I had like a tear. Yeah, at my kitchen table, and it wasn't the love story part of it. I was just like, wow, she did a great job in really capturing um, what science means to us. I think on an individual level. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a great book. All right, enough with my earnest. Uh, <laughs> exclamations. Robert, take us on home. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, I can believe we have a little uh, listener mail here. Okay. We have uh, have one here from a listener by the name of Peter, and uh, he writes in, Julian Robert, regarding the Future of Pain podcast, first of all, what is an Indian burn? <laughs> I grew up with three boisterous brothers, and I'm sure that we tortured each other in various ways, but I've never heard of this particular infliction of pain. Um do you want to answer that? What an Indian burn is? Um, it's when you take someone's arm, for instance, mm-hmm. and you put uh, both of your hands on, and then you twist in opposite directions until okay. this is my understanding of it. Other people may have other variations, but you do it. This so is that the you, Julie method. Yeah, this is my John, my brother method, um, until your skin becomes raw and hurts a lot. Okay. All right. So anyway, uh, uh, Peter, there you go. And, and I don't know the etymology of it. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, I don't think it's actually Native American or Ayurvedic in uh, in its origins. No. Uh, anyway, uh, Peter continues. However, my bigger question is whether this is an appropriate... Oh, no, he goes on to ask about the racial and ethical references. So, so there you go. That's our answer, too. It probably doesn't. But he, anyway, his main point is, uh, I want to come back to the new uh, anesthetic technique called continuous peripheral nerve block. In 2009, I was in a truly horrific head-on car crash caused by a drunk driver, resulting in severe trauma and burns. I was hospitalized for five months, and I am truly grateful for pain management with opiates. These drugs certainly made me somewhat loopy and confused, but I wouldn't call it a high. Even so, these side effects may, may have been, been side effects may have been beneficial. In retrospect, I think that it was helpful to only uh, gradually become conscious and uh, cognizant of my permanent injuries. If my physical discomfort had been controlled in such a way that my thoughts were clear and present, I think that I would have been pained and tra- uh, traumatized in other ways. It was difficult enough to accept my missing fingers and toes, large areas of grafted skin, and generally shattered existence. In addition, I was essentially immobilized on my back for three months, and the narcotic effect of Oxycontin and other medications certainly made this miserable time more tolerable. Fortunately, as I have continued to recover, I am not in any constant pain or, or even in any significant intermittent pain. I have learned to walk again. I am composing this message with voice recognition software, and I am working half-time in my profession. I do have some long-term side effects from the extended period on opiates, such as chronic difficulty sleeping, sleeping but no addictions. Opiates were definitely worth it. I'm a regular listener. Thanks for the great podcast. So, uh, Peter, thanks for writing in. That was uh, you know, the the, um, the nerve blocking uh, technique was something we discussed as well as the use of opiates. So it, it's really nice to to have uh, uh, some listener feedback on, yeah. on how this actually affects one's life. Yeah, and we're glad that you're doing well as well. So, Indeed. Yeah, thank you for listening. So hey, if you uh, have anything that you would like to share with us, uh, one place you can find us is Facebook. The other is Twitter. On both of those, we are below the mind. And hey, I actually have a correction within this podcast right now, right here, and that is that I have been referring to Lauren Redness as Laura. So Lauren, my apologies. And if you'd like to email us, please do so at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.